Today on the Dominic Enyart Show, we are staying away from the news and continuing our conversation on the canon of the Bible. We're finally getting down to the nitty-gritty details of how the early church formed the canon of the New Testament. We'll also be debunking the claim that it wasn't until centuries after Christ that the church developed the canon. Should be a lot of fun. All of that and more right here on the Dominic Enyart Show. Greetings to the brightest audience in the country and welcome to the Dominic Enyart Show. Yesterday, we started talking and, and getting back into to our discussion on the canon of the Bible, specifically the canon of the New Testament, and we didn't quite get down into the nitty gritty, and I want to do that here today. And how did we get the canon of the New Testament? Remember, the canon is the collection of writings that belong in the Bible. And when forming the canon, the early church, they had to decide which writings to include in the Word of God and which writings to not include. And as believers, we think, of course, there is a correct canon regardless of if we have it or not there is a correct canon out there uh, even if it's being ignored it does exist uh, whereas the historical critical school they believe that the canon does not exist and so the historical critical school they've been looked at as the authority on uh, what books belong in the canon, which really is a bummer because they don't believe there is a canon that exists. And so it would be uh, great if Christians could take back that authority. And so we're, we're, we're do we've been doing shows on this and it's a fun topic. It's, it's a, there's a lot to it, but it's a fun topic. But now picking up where we left off yesterday, if you want to find the previous shows we've done on the canon of the Bible, you can check out kgov.com slash canon, and that will have a list and a link to all the other canon shows that we've done. But now just continuing where we left off yesterday, we don't have any original autographs of the texts in the Bible, and that is, it's a bummer, and they were most likely lost because of the Roman persecution of the early church. And the Romans, they believed if they could destroy the, you know, Christian literature, they could destroy Christianity. And in the end, they were wrong. And you cannot destroy Christianity. And if you think you can, that is, it is laughable to think you can destroy Christianity. And all I have to say to that is, well, take your best shot. Take your best shot. The Romans failed, and so will you. But the Romans, they did destroy the uh, original autographs and others, some of them, and others were lost due to wear and tear. And the early church not keeping these autographs and making copies, it illustrates that they cared more so about the message of the Bible than the vehicle of the Bible, which really, it does show some spiritual maturity on their part. They didn't fall into superstition and they didn't worship the, you know, the paper and the ink, which the Bible was written on. 
And so that, that is a good thing. Uh, but rather, they worshipped the one who gave us the message, and they, they cared about the message and not the vehicle of the message. And that's like, right, in the Old Testament, we saw biblical relics from the Holy Land. They were, uh, they, they were quasi-worshipped, you know, rather than God himself. Like you have the Ark of the Covenant. The people of Israel took the Ark with them to war, and they thought that the Ark had this mysterious power in it. And so they, they put their faith in the Ark rather than putting their faith in God himself. And they ignored God himself, and they just cared. And rather, they placed their faith in a representation of God rather than God. And could you imagine, right, like if we were to find, say, like, Moses staff. Imagine how many superstitious Christians would think that we could wield it and become powerful as if the power came from the staff itself rather than from God. Actually, you know, now that I'm saying it, I do think they they claim to have found Moses staff, which I'm skeptical of. Um, it seems to have gone missing according to the Bible, but it'd be interesting to see how superstitious Christians react when they see that staff. I, I'd bet a lot would think we could use it to perform miracles on command, which, hey, if they were right, that would be cool. But I, <laughs> I am uh, skeptical of that. But so God, in his wisdom, he did allow the original autographs to vanish away and we're not totally sure as to why uh but you know we can uh we can speculate and a very plausible reason that he did this was to prevent the worship of the bible bibliolatry uh from replacing the worship of god himself and so uh god does have his reasons for allowing the uh, original autographs to disappear, and I, I would guess that is a primary one. Um, but now to get down into the nitty-gritty of the canon of the New Testament, I'd like to briefly dis discuss the motivation for the canon. And some secular scholars have claimed that Christians, they didn't care about the canon, and they didn't really discuss the canon of New Testament books until you know, several centuries after the life of Christ. Um, but luckily, we know this is untrue, thanks in part to a guy named Marcion of Sinope. And he died in 160 AD. And Marcion, he was denounced as a heretic and excommunicated from the church. So poor, poor guy, poor Marcion, so lonely, all by himself. And this guy, he was originally, he was a church bishop. And he had a negative view of God and, and how God was represented in the Old Testament. And because of this, uh, the heretic, um, and he was, right, he was alive shortly after the time of Christ. Um, what he did was he made his, he had his own teachings and he made his own Bible, and he said, okay, these books belong, and he pretty much cut off all of the Old Testament and a pretty good majority of the New Testament, and I believe he had 10 of the Pauline epistles, and I think it was the the book of Luke he, he had, but it was a modified book of Luke, um, but because of him, it forced the church to discuss the canon, what books are going to belong. And remember that 
at Josephus' time, we talked about him. He's the historian. At his time, when he was writing uh, about, when he wrote about Jesus and Jesus' time, he said that the canon of the Old Testament was not in question. But now after Christ, this dude shows up and he starts causing a fuss and he flat out rejects the Old Testament and a lot of the New Testament. And the main reason that he chose the books that he did was that he thought Paul was the only apostle who correctly understood the message of salvation, which only, if only, if only Markian, if only he would have been a dispensationalist, if only he would have understood that, if only, oh, that would have been so pristine. But instead, he made a fool out of himself by rejecting the majority of the Bible. But so the church, point being, the, the church rejected him very quickly and rejected his teachings and his list of the canon, his, his books that he said this makes up the entirety of the Bible. And also the Gnostics, you might have heard that term thrown around in theology debates. Usually it's like a derogatory word meant to insult the other person. If you want to call them stupid, you would call them a Gnostic. And... Uh, but the um, the Gnosticism movement, uh, which is also considered heretical, they had their own beliefs about salvation and how you had to attain salvation by acquiring special knowledge. And so the Gnostics, well, they had their own canon of the Bible as well. And you've you've probably heard of the false gospels, like there's the false gospel of Thomas, for example. And they included writings like that and others. Uh, but so anyways, that, that guy, uh, Markian and the Gnostics, they forced a discussion. They kind of provoked the church to discuss which books should be included in, in the Bible. And that was shortly after the time of Christ. That was not centuries and centuries later, as a lot of secular scholars would have you believe. Uh, but it wasn't just the pressure, right, from outside groups that forced the church to form a canon. It, like, that That helps us prove that it was forced, not centuries later, but just shortly after the life of Christ. But that wasn't the only reason that it was formed. Remember that the early church, right, they were largely Jewish believers, and Paul himself was a Jew, and, of course, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, um, although he himself, he was extremely Jewish. He even talked about how Jewish he was in his own writings, right? In uh, Philippians, he says, you know, oh, I am a Jew circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a zealot concerning the law. I'm as Jewish as you get. And uh, he was the head of the Gentile church. And so it just it goes to show that much of the early many of the early church believers they were Jewish and they already had an idea of what you know canon was they they understood that okay these books are scripture these books are important and other books are not and they had the old testament canon and that was a very clear illustration of that and further they knew at the time when the authors were writing the New Testament, they knew at that time that some of these new writings would be included and they'd be marked as, you know, the word of God. Um, even in the writings themselves, they referred to their own writings and other writings as 
scripture. For example, in Second Peter 3.16, when Peter mentions Paul's writings, he implies that they are scripture. And so it was very early on in the church that Christians knew they had to form a canon. And even aside from outside pressure, they knew that they what they had was scripture and that it had to be collected and compiled. And so the claim secular scholars make that the canon wasn't considered until centuries later, it <laughs> it is not a strong claim. It's mainly made to sow doubt. And if you're interested in more information on the historical record of the early church talking about a, can- a canon, on today's show summary at kgov.com, I'm going to link to a book there, and it is The Essence of the New Testament, a survey. And that's the name of the book. The name of the book is The Essence of the New Testament, a survey, uh, which it, that book goes into a little bit more detail talking about the early church and their look at the canon. Um, but we can be confident that they, it, it was something that they were you know, focused on when the writings were coming out and shortly thereafter. It wasn't centuries later. Um, but now we can finally get down into the nitty-gritty, what we've all been waiting for, the process that the early church used to form the canon. And the process, it is a little bit complicated, so we'll have to stay sharp as we go through this. So put your thinking caps on. Uh, but there were pretty much, there were six main criteria which a writing needed to meet for it to be considered scripture. And the six criteria are, one, apostolicity, two, antiquity, three, orthodoxy, four, Catholic, uh, Catholicity, five, traditional use, and six is inspiration. And okay, now I want to go through these all one at a time. Apostolicity, uh, that is, that means that the book, it must have been written by an apostle or someone closely related to an apostle. And and why is it that it can be someone who's closely related to an apostle? Well, for the same reason that it was okay for a scribe to record the death of Moses in his writings. And for the same reason it was okay for a scribe to record the death of Joshua in the book of Joshua. Uh, the main thing is that it's, you know, if it's uh, the ideas of an apostle. And this is the main criterion to determine whether or not New Testament writings belong is, is it that of an apostle. And this is the main test. And as the early church, they saw apostles as being on par with the prophets. And you can see that in uh, the writings of the New Testament. And with the New Testament, basically all of it meets this requirement without much debate that it's either of apostles or those close to apostles. But there is a slight problem just with Hebrews because there's some debate as to who the author of Hebrews was. Many in the early church, they believed it to have been Paul. And many Christian scholars today think it was Luke. And But regardless of who you think it was written by, just the fact that there is some debate about it is problematic because, you know, if we're 
slightly unsure of the authorship and we're unsure uh, you know who it's written by how could we claim this meets the first standard to tell if this does belong in the bible um well regardless of if it was paul or not hebrews 13:23 it mentions timothy and timothy he was a student of paul he was close with paul and the author of hebrews seems to have been very close with Timothy as he said, Now our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Uh, So most likely it seems that it was Paul, but if not, it seems like it was someone in Paul's close circle, someone who would have traveled with Timothy. So it does meet uh, the first standard. And next we have antiquity, uh, which is essentially just the time period in which various texts were composed, um, right? We might see a book written by Billy Graham or John Piper or other leading Christians today, and they might be helpful for us, and they might, some of them might even be, you know, doctrinally sound, uh, but we wouldn't put them on the same tier as Scripture. And the early church, also, they had other writings that were helpful that weren't on the same tier as Scripture. And one surefire way they could tell was, you know, was this written during the time the apostles were writing? And if not, it wouldn't be included. And so there was a cutoff time for when new things would have been added to the canon. There was a cutoff time. Uh, then we have orthodoxy, which is also called the rule of faith or, you know, right doctrine. And essentially the early church, they would look at various documents and ask, you know, is this writing, is it consistent with Christian truth? And Christian truth was the theology taught by various mainstream, so to speak, churches, such as the churches in Corinth and Ephesus and uh, Philippi and whatnot. And if a document, if it supported heretical teachings, for example, then it's pretty easy to reject that. It would have been rejected. For example, we mentioned earlier the Gnostics. They used the Gospel of Thomas to support the idea that you need special knowledge to get salvation. And that it didn't meet the criteria because it was not orthodox. Now, interestingly enough, during the Reformation, Martin Luther, he kind of he, he kind of wanted to ditch a lot of the books in the New Testament, which would have been really bad if he succeeded. And he wanted to ditch them for two main reasons. One, because Martin Luther was an intense racist. Holy cow, that dude did not like Jews. He was very anti-Semitic. And he, he even at one point, he wrote a book titled On the Jews and Their Lies. And wow, if you want if you want some anti-Semitism, that is pretty pretty clear cut there, and you can see his racism documented. By the way, you can check that out on kigov.com/luther. But point is that he heavily disliked much of uh, Jewish writings, um, specifically James, which we'll talk about in just a second here. Uh, with point number two. Um, Point number two that he wanted to get rid of a lot of the uh, New Testament was because he thought that it did not line up with Christian orthodoxy. And that was in his foolishness that he thought that. 
And Luther, he explicitly hated, as I said, the book of James, and specifically how James chapter 2, seemingly it contradicts with Romans chapter 3. By the way, Christians right now, today, in 2022, we all believe that we are saved by grace through faith alone. That's orthodox Christianity. We are all saved by grace through faith alone, lest any man should boast of his works That's basic Christianity, right? Christianity 101. And Ephesians 2, it says, right, in verse 8, For by the grace of God you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any one should boast. So textbook Christianity, not complicated. And Martin Luther, he hated the book of James because it seemed to, according to him, to contradict with basic Christianity, according to him in his ignorance. And, you know, I think I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here and explain Luther's objections without giving... <laughs> I'm going to explain his his objections, and I'm not going to give the solutions. That might sound a little bit crazy, uh, but I'm going to do it <laughs> regardless. Uh, but Luther, right, he looked at James chapter 2, where James wrote, and this is starting in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Then in verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Wow. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And then in verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And Luther, he absolutely hated this. He could not stand this. He hated it because he could not square this. Well, A, he probably hated it because he was a racist, but more so he hated it because he could not square this with his understanding of scripture. And this passage, it seemingly directly contradicts Romans 3.28, which says, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So pretty explicitly, James says, faith alone will not save you. Uh, And by the way, that, that phrase, faith alone, it only appears once in the entire Bible. Only once in the entire Bible does that phrase appear. And it's in that very verse where it says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's the only time in the entire Bible that the the phrase faith alone appears in the Bible. And that in contrast with Romans 3, which says, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And what do you know? Apparently, according to Luther, they contradict each other. And so Luther, what does he want? He wants James gone. He wants it out of here. And I'm actually not going to explain I'm not going to explain how these seemingly contradictory verses, they work and they're both in the Bible. And I'm not, I'm not going to explain that on today's show. It's, it's, it is too big of a topic. But I, I will take a moment to talk about how a lot of Christians try and square this up. What a lot of Christians say, and I, I think this is incorrect, is they say, oh, James is just talking about a test, a test that you can kind of take on yourself to see whether or not you're saved. 
And James is saying, well, if you're saved by faith, you are saved by faith only. That's what James is saying. Uh, but if you want to figure out if you're saved, you have to see if you have works. And if you have works, then yeah, you're saved. And that's a good test to figure it out. But that, that I do not believe is a, a very good way to square these verses. Uh, reason being is that what James is talking about, he's not talking about a test. It's not some test of salvation. James explicitly here is saying faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Wow, that that is something. That's not yeah, that's, <laughs> you don't you don't think about that too much, right? Faith without works is dead. Is that how we think of our faith? No, we think faith faith alone. Uh, but James here says faith without works is dead. And salvation, right? Salvation is eternal life. And can something that is dead give you eternal life? And so this is a really complicated issue. Squaring James chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3 together. Squaring those, it is a challenge that we as Christians have to look at. And it's not as simple as saying, oh, it's just a, it's just a test, just discount it. That's not the solution. Um, and Martin Luther, he did not know how to square that either, so he wanted to get rid of James. And by the way, if you do want the solution to that, it's a, it's a hard question with a long answer. Uh, but it, and the answer, the answer to that, it, it's a very, very good answer and a very, very compelling answer, much more compelling and satisfying than just, oh, it's just some test or whatever. And you can find that answer, I believe, in my father and predecessor's life's work, the plot. And the plot, understanding the plot of the Bible is the key to understanding its details. And the plot, it really lays it out so simply and the plot it asks some big questions like how do we square James 2 and Romans 3 but then it really it pulls through I highly recommend you check that out you can go to our website kgov.com and we'll have that link to on today's show summary you can pick that up or if you want to come back later you can just click on go to kgov.com and click on the store get Bob Inyart's the plot and it will resolve that and so much more so much more I've been going through it again recently and holy cow, I know I'm biased, but holy cow, absolutely phenomenal. But anyways, uh, anyways, um, luckily, the early church, they did not have the same hangups that Luther did. Uh, they figured it out, and rather, they understood that James, that it was, it was orthodox, and so they decided to keep it. And thankfully, they were smarter than Luther was, and they kept it. But regardless, getting back on topic, that was the third thing that the early church would use as a test to test the validity of the Bible. Um, okay, all right, moving on to the fourth uh, standard, which the early church used, was uh, Catholicity. Am I saying that right? I, I hope I'm saying that right. Catholicity. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, and that referred to... You know, early, early on, early set, widespread acceptance of texts by the church, the church at large. And so if a book was only locally accepted as authoritative in some small, obscure church, it typically wasn't considered canon. And a writing didn't need to be 
you know, totally 100 percent uh, accepted every single place it went to. Uh, but generally, if it was received by most churches, it was sorry, if it was not received by most churches, it was not included. And Mike Winger, who I've mentioned before on the show, Mike Winger, his teachings on how we got the canon of the Bible, really powerful teachings. And I'm going to recommend checking you guys check out his video if you want to go into some more depth on that. And he, he has a few videos and we'll we'll have those embedded on today's show summary at kgov.com. And he really does a good job of going through scripture and some extra biblical sources to show how, you know, very similar with the Old Testament, the New Testament canon, it came about pretty organically, right? It wasn't, it wasn't like some weird council with, you know, you hear a lot about the Council of Nicaea with, you know, a bunch of hooded figures in a dark room and they just come out and go, like, this is the Bible. Don't ask us how we did it. That's not really how it came about. It came about much more organically. And Mike Winger, he does a really good job uh, presenting that. And pretty much the entire church, they recognized the apostles as having the same authority as the prophets, right? So apostles and prophets, they were pretty, you know, they, they had the same level of credibility uh, to the early church. And Winger, he points out how in the New Testament writings, say Peter's, for examples, that he just assumes that the readers, they know that Paul's writings are scriptures, right? He doesn't make a big case for it, and it do he doesn't make a big argument for it, but he just assumes that you as the reader, yeah, it's scripture. Yeah, everyone knows that. And so if you want to check out his videos, you can check those out on today's show summary at kgov.com. And then we have traditional use which traditional use refers to the continuous use of, uh, you know, a document by those same churches, right? So we want to make sure that these documents are, you know, widely accepted and they're not just one obscure church who's saying that we should use them. But then further is to make sure that they are used continually. And right as the early church was developing, some, some documents, they faded out and they were, you know, kind of non-important and others were looked at to be studied and they were they, you were supposed to study those documents as part of everyday Christian life. And so it wasn't only acceptance of certain writings, but it was continued acceptance and continued use of them that would help a book to be recognized as canon. And then finally, we get to inspiration. And this was the claim by, you know, the biblical authors that the message of the book was given by God, right? The biblical authors, they weren't just saying, you know, oh, here's some fun book about an idea I had. They were saying these books, the ideas from them come directly from God. It's not just some random, random author, but they, these people are claiming that they are inspired by God and you know, the styling of the book or the vocabulary or the, the the literary, you know, layout of the book, all that quite possibly was given by the author and not necessarily inspired by God. But the message and the the story and the narrative and the teachings, those were directly inspired by God. And 
again, showing that attitude, albeit in a slightly different way, that the message behind the Bible was more important than the vehicle that was conveying the message of the Bible. And so when we apply these six criteria, apostolicity, antiquity, orthodoxy, uh, catholicity, (laughs) traditional use, and inspiration— When we apply all of those to all of the books in the New Testament and to the writings left out, it shows consistency in the canon as it was handed down to what we have today. And, you know, there are some of those so-called gospels out there that have popped up here and there recently, and they always cause a stir, right? And you have the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas and uh, you know, people ask why Christians don't include those, and the answer, part of the answer, is that when you apply these six criteria, those writings don't, they don't measure up. And, you know, first, those Gospels, they can't really directly be linked to an apostle. That's the main thing. You know, they might have the name on there of an apostle, but it can't really be uh, shown credibly that they're linked to an apostle. Secondly, that there are some very unorthodox teachings in those writings. For example, we talked about Gnostics. And then also that, thirdly, none of these writings were widely accepted by the early church. And now, uh, and that, that's, those are just some of the reasons that we don't just randomly take on new books and add in random books into the Bible uh, now, earlier I mentioned that book, The Essence of the New Testament, a survey. That's been a big part of what I've used to look at the canon of the New Testament. It's a valuable resource that goes into depth on these points. And I, I recommend, if you can get your hands on that, reading the first several pages as they deal with the canon. Um, but at its close on the section of the canon, it discusses a like just a more logical a priori argument which uh, tries to say that the canon of the Bible, that it's been preserved, and it goes as follows. One, that God had a message that he wanted to reveal to man. Two, that God chose a multiple number of authors who would write down the message for others to understand. Three, that God knew his revelation would be attacked from without. Four, that God knew that the recipients of his revelation, they were not scholars, but they were just average people in average circumstances. And five, therefore, God, he could be expected personally to guarantee the contents, right, the revelation, the accuracy of his words, the inspiration, and the compilation of those different messages uh, from all of his messengers, you, he could be expected to preserve that in one coherent unit, which would be the canon. In this way, the message would be transmitted into future generations, so there would be no corruption, alteration, deletion, or uh, addition to the word of God. And that is, it's right, it's an interesting argument worth worth considering. To me, it seems to be overstating the case a little bit, as we discussed uh, on last show. You know, there has been some alteration to the Bible since its original autographs, and certainly with various translations all saying different things from each other, you can't have all of those 
translations saying different things. They can't all be correct. You know, especially, right, like we talked about the Wicked Bible that says, thou shalt commit adultery. And, uh, but in terms of having enough of the biblical message, that certainly is true. And I, I certainly think we can trust God to preserve his word enough that we can understand enough. We have enough of a understanding of God and his character and his power and his might and his personality too. We understand a lot about God's personality, which is really neat. Uh, we also have enough to understand man's fallen human broken nature and that we are broken and that we are in need of a savior and that the main goal in life is to be reconciled with God and then to honor and glorify God. We can understand that. We have enough to understand that and that we have we we have enough in the scripture which has been preserved well enough for us to understand how to do those things as uh it teaches in Romans 10 9 and 10 by the way you can uh remember that Romans 10 9 and 10 TNT Romans 10 9 and 10 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so, yes, we do have enough. And when we're reading the scriptures, we can be confident that it's not it's not the word of man, but this is the living, breathing word of God. All right, that is how we got the canon of the New Testament. I hope you guys enjoyed. If you want to support the show, consider going to kgov.com. Uh, purchase the, the plot. The plot is the greatest in the world. Holy cow, is it great? Or make a donation. You can sponsor a show, right? You can sponsor one show a month. The very best ways to help us out are monthly donations. But hey, that is going to do it for me here today on the Dominic Enyart Show. Hope you guys join us tomorrow for Theology Thursday and then on Friday with Real Science Radio. And that'll be, I believe we've got Doug McBurney and Fred Williams on Do All Dogs Go to Heaven Part 2. Part 1 was a lot of fun and I already got a sneak peek at Part 2. I know that's going to be fun. So highly recommend you guys check that out. I hope you guys join us again here next week. And I will see you guys again on Tuesday. Hey, may God bless you guys.